this glorious truth that God is with us. God with us, Emmanuel. Um, in two weeks, many, many children are going to be scurrying to the Christmas tree to open gifts. And it begs the question, why do we do gifts? Why do we give gifts? And especially at Christmas time, why do we give gifts? Well, if I were to ask a hundred people out on the street or at Walmart today, I might get various answers, but I hope that your answer goes something like this. We give gifts because of the gift we've been given. We give gifts to our children or to our friends, to our spouses, and so forth because of the gift that we have been given. The true meaning of Christmas is about a gift. I mean, fundamentally, it's about a gift. In fact, you might say that all Christmas is about is a gift. We sing about it, right? We just sang about it. We read about it in Scripture. We talk about it. We celebrate it. And in light of the gift, the gift, we give gifts. Listen to the words of Isaiah 7, 14. This is a prophecy spoken several centuries, probably 700 years before Christ was born. It says this, The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin will conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his, excuse me, and shall call his name Emmanuel. It says the Lord himself. The Lord himself will do something. The Lord himself will do it. He, he won't... He won't ask for help from anybody else. He doesn't need help from anybody else. He acts unilaterally, and what does he do? He gives. He gives. He gives a present. He gives a gift. The gift of all gifts. And here's the amazing thing. The gift that he gives is a person named Emmanuel, God with us. God with us. What a glorious truth. That the God of the universe, the God who made everything, the God who spoke everything into existence out of nothing, that he is with us. Charles Spurgeon said about this truth, said this, let us admire this truth. Let us stand in reverent distance from it as Moses when he saw God in the bush and stood a little back and took off his shoes feeling that he was standing on holy ground. The God, the one true God of the universe is with us. And here's the amazing thing. It's not just that he's with us, it's that he took every step to be with us. He wants to be with us. I remember uh, Reed's dad, Lowell, my wife's grandfather, he had this saying, and I heard him say it several times. He did say it to me one time, too. I felt pretty special. But he would say this. He would say, I like and, excuse me, I love and like you. Okay? I love and like you. Remember that, Reed, don't you? Okay. I love and like you. Okay? I love you. But he also said, I like you. In other words, he, he, he enjoyed being with his children, his grandchildren, in my case, his grandson-in-law, and so forth. What a glorious privilege. The God of the universe wants to be with us. And far from being a killjoy, right? There's some people we gather with, we love them, but sometimes they're hard to be with, right? They kind of take the air out of the room. 
They kind of make it a little challenging to be in the same room with them. Far from being a killjoy like that, God is the happiest person in the universe. And he wants to share his happiness with us. Jesus said in John 15, 11, These things I have said to you so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. So it's not just that Jesus gives us joy, like here's some joy, be full of joy, but he gives us his joy and we are to be filled with his joy. Now, of course, God was with his people before Jesus came. God's purpose all along has been to be with his people and dwell among them. Right? In the Garden of Eden, he was with Adam and Eve. He walked in the cool of the day with Adam. But when they sinned, the most devastating effect that happened was alienation from God. That was the worst, right? It was alienation. It was estrangement from the God who had made us. And it wasn't just for Adam and Eve. It was for all of their posterities, for all their descendants after them. This alienation from God, it was devastating, and we still see the devastating effects all around us. People alienated from God, living in bondage to sin. But even in the garden, God spoke of his purpose to restore all that was lost. And so in the Old Testament, as we make our way through the Old Testament, we see shadows of God's intention to dwell among his people, to dwell in their midst. We see it in the tabernacle, right? The, the, the Israelites would pick up all the equipment of the tabernacle, make their way through the desert, and they would set it up, and God would come and meet with them, meet with Moses in the tent of meeting. We also see it in the temple in Jerusalem where God dwelt in the holy place, the most holy place. But these were all pointing forward to the time when God himself would come in the flesh and tabernacle among his people and dwell among his people. John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. There was something new about that. It wasn't just like he used to dwell among his people. There was something fundamentally different about that when Christ came, which leads to our text this morning. This is a remarkable story. You guys ever thought about what it would have been like to be Joseph? You ever thought about that? You're engaged to be married to a young woman. You find out she's pregnant, and you know it's not from you. Okay, you know it's not from you. And she tells you the story of what happened, and you want to believe her, but it sounds crazy. And so Joseph is thinking about these things his, his, his betrothed, this woman he's engaged to, is pregnant, and he's going to put her away. But he's a just man, so he wants to put her away quietly. And as he's thinking about these things, in a dream, he encounters an angel. Right on cue, right? No, I'm joking. <laughs> and the angel comes and says to him, Joseph, don't fear to take Mary to be your wife. This that is conceived in her, is from the Holy Spirit. I love that. It's from the Holy Spirit. And then says, you're to to call his name Jesus. Then verse 22 says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. All this took place to fulfill the coming of Emmanuel, God with us. What does it mean that God is with us? What does it mean that Jesus is Emmanuel? 
Have you heard anybody just kind of flippantly, someone you're not really sure they, they believe in Christ or have no saving faith in Christ, maybe just kind of generally believe in God, but they say things like, well, I just know that God's always with me. You ever heard someone say that? Of course you have. I have too, many times. Um, what does it mean that God is with us? Well, my aim this morning is very simple. Maybe not easy, but it's simple. I want you to be thrilled with Jesus Christ as Emmanuel and stir up a deep desire to know him as a God who is with you and to love him and to live, with, live for him with all of your heart. So in order to do that, I want us to look at Jesus as Emmanuel in four steps. Okay, Jesus as Emmanuel in four steps. Jesus is Emmanuel, first in his incarnation, second in his mediation, third in his abiding presence with us, and fourth in his future advent or future coming, or one might say consummation. So first, Jesus is Emmanuel in his incarnation. Jesus is Emmanuel in that he became like you and I in every way, except one really important way, he never sinned. When Jesus was born, or actually when he was conceived in Mary's womb, God entered into his creation. He was birthed in a person that he made. He was growing in her womb. The eternal God became man. Now it's really important that we understand that when Jesus, the eternal son of God, became man, he didn't become less than God when he came into the world, and he was not less than fully human when he came into the world. He was fully God, remained fully God, and became fully human. An old, an old uh, Reformed confession called the Heidelberg Confession states it this way. It says, The eternal Son of God, who is and remains true and eternal God, took upon himself true human nature from the flesh and blood of the Virgin Mary through the working Of the Holy Spirit. So we see three things that need to be held together, and we see them actually here in Matthew chapter 1. First, that a virgin will miraculously conceive and give birth to a son, right? Mary was a virgin. She was she she had not been with a man yet. Second, the baby conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. From the Spirit. And third, the baby. In her womb, that is to be born from her, is God. And of course, he is. Emmanuel, God with us. This is the foundation of our faith, and it is an astounding miracle. It is no small thing when liberal theologians think think we can just do away with the virgin birth and be okay. Right? It's the virgin birth, and then it's the incarnation, and then it's the atoning work of Christ, and it goes on and on and on and on. This is an astounding miracle, a glorious miracle. Jesus wasn't crucified by the Jewish religious elite because he claimed to be born of a virgin. He was crucified because he claimed to be God. They would have none of it. And so as believers, as Christians, we need perhaps a new category in our minds, okay? Maybe you don't, but some of us maybe do. Jesus, 
the eternal Son of God remained what he always was from all eternity, namely God, and became what he was not before, namely a human. Now let's face it, all, uh, for those of us who have been in church for a long time, um, we run the risk of losing the wonder of this miracle, or quite frankly, of a lot of what the scripture teaches. Um, I'm convinced that one of the reasons we run for constant entertainment, Gene talked about pulling out his phone, right? We all have them. One reason we run for constant entertainment is because we've lost wonder. The wonder of our God. Holy Trinity, right? Blessed Trinity, God, one God, three persons. The, the, the wonder of our Savior, one man, two natures, glorious. The wonder of what he has accomplished for us. Think of the glorious condescension of our God to take on human nature. I mean, it might make sense to us that God would take on the nature of an unfallen angel, Right? Or perhaps if there were a race of human beings somewhere on some planet that had never sinned, that God would take on the nature of that race of human beings. Of course, there is not one. But Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, came in the likeness of sinful flesh. And that's the language of Romans 8, right? He came in the likeness of sinful flesh. He was not sinful, but he came in the likeness of sinful flesh. Consider this, when Jesus was born, as Mary held him in her arms, Jesus, according to his human nature, was utterly helpless like every other baby you've ever held. Right? He needed to be nursed. He needed to be carried from one place to another. He needed to have his diaper changed or whatever they did back then. I don't know. And he needed to be totally cared for. And yet... Jesus Christ, according to his divine nature, was holding up the universe by the word of his power. Now, there are many ways that throughout, throughout the history of Christianity that people have tried to understand this. They might, they, I mean, like, like any reasonable person, we say, how can this be? Well, it's, we can't fully understand it. But some have suggested, well, maybe Jesus wasn't fully God. Maybe he, you know, put aside some of his, right? When he came on the scene, he wasn't that impressive to look at. Maybe he put aside some of his divine attributes. Maybe he didn't exercise or didn't kind of put aside omniscience or omnipresence or omnipotence or others. But of course, this would then make him less than God. How can God put aside some of his attributes? Like I said, when he came on the scene, he was not outwardly impressive, but even this was part of his glory for those who have faith to perceive. Paul makes it clear in Colossians 2.19 that the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily in Christ. So Jesus, when he walked the Galilean countryside, was not God light. He was Emmanuel, God with us, fully God. Others have suggested that maybe Jesus just looked like a man, right? But really wasn't. Maybe it was just kind of a, a vision of a man or if you've ever heard of the word theophany, kind of a, you, something you see but it's not real. 
but that won't work either. Hebrews 2.17 said he had to be made like us in every way. Jesus had to be made like us in every way. It was necessary that he be made like you and me in every single way. So when Jesus walked the streets of Jerusalem, when he healed the sick, when he cast out demons, when he ate and drank with tax collectors and sinners, he was truly a man doing that, the God-man. The Apostle John says, said in 1 John 1, 1, we have heard him with our ears, we have seen him with our eyes, we have touched him with our hands. So he didn't just have the appearance of a man, he was and is the real deal. And yet he was anything but a mere man. He was and is the God-man, the long-awaited Messiah who has come to be with his people. He's come to be with his people. And Hebrews 4 it makes it makes this wonderful point that because Jesus, because we have such a Savior in Jesus who is sympathetic toward our weaknesses and temptations. In fact, it doesn't put it that way. It puts it in the double negative. It says we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. He was made like us in every way except one massively important way. He never sinned, but he was tempted. He was truly tempted. We sing a song, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, that has this line, Come to earth to taste our sadness. He whose glories knew no end. Imagine that. A God who knows sorrow and grief. A God who's tasted our sadness, tasted our pain, our weaknesses, and our temptations firsthand. Jesus has. He is Emmanuel. He's God with us. But Jesus is also Emmanuel in his mediation. What do I mean by that? Well, Jesus is is Emmanuel in his sufficient work to mediate between God and men. A mediator is one who represents two people or two parties that are alienated in order to bring them together. And Jesus Christ, as the God-man, is the only mediator between God and mankind. 1 Peter 2, 5 and 6 says, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. This is fundamentally the reason Jesus came into the world. God became a man. God becoming a man was a means to an end. Right? The goal of the incarnation was Good Friday, was the cross. That's why Jesus came. He was born to die. Right? It's, it's like when you prep for dinner. The prep is not the feast. The dinner is. But it's a means to an end. And Jesus being born as a human being, the, the eternal son of God, taking on human flesh is a means to an end. And so at Christmas, we can't stop with the baby in the manger. Right? That's important. It's massively important. But we need to follow that baby to when he became a grown man and hung on a rugged cross. Remember, the angel told Joseph what the baby was to be named. Jesus. He was to be given the name Jesus. And the reason for that name was that he would save his people from their sins. 
So ultimately, we understand that Jesus Christ was born to die. And of course, that's, what Jesus, that's how Jesus understood his own mission and purpose. He said almost the same thing that Paul says in 1 Timothy 2, 5, and 6, when Jesus said the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I love how 1 Timothy 2, 5, and 6 connects us Uh, connects for us the incarnation and the cross by telling us that Jesus is the God-man and what he accomplished as our mediator. What did he accomplish? He gave himself as a ransom. He gave himself as a ransom. Something, so you know what a ransom is perhaps. Uh, It's something, um, it's a price paid to redeem Jesus gave himself as a ransom. He gave himself. And was the ransom fully paid? It's not a trick question. Was the ransom fully paid? It was fully paid, right? Amen, yes. The ransom was fully paid. A thousand times yes. The final words of Christ on the cross, according to the Gospel of John, are the words, it is finished. Or paid in Jesus' work as mediator is a perfect and sufficient work. The price of our redemption and the removal of our sins has been paid in full, and thus Christ, our mediator, is a perfect mediator. Our sin was a massive barrier keeping us from God and keeping us under his judgment. But this barrier was not too big for Christ to overcome. Now let's face it, our sins are great. And if we know ourselves, we know that our sins are great. But the mighty love and mercy of Emmanuel are greater. Richard Sibbs in his book, A Bruised Reed, uh, wrote these words long ago. And I would urge you, get the book if you want. I mean, get, if you like, I think you'd enjoy it. It's good. But remember these words. Remember these words. He said this, there is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. There's more mercy in Christ than sin in us. Praise his name. He comes to us. He removes the barrier of sin. He removes it fully and completely. You read through the book of Hebrews and it's so powerful and precious to see over and over and over again by one sacrifice, by one offering, Christ has removed sin. And therefore, that barrier for those who are in Christ is no longer there. He's removed them as far as the east is from the west. He has so sufficiently removed them that God remembers our sins no more. Now, There are some here who don't know that. But I want you to. I want you to know that today. That God has removed your sins. It comes only through conscious, living faith in Christ. He deals with our sins decisively and completely. His name is Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now notice, I couldn't get over this this last week as I thought about this over and over again. He will save his people from their sins. He will not try to save them. 
he will not do the best he can. He won't do most of the work and then we do the rest to save ourselves from our sins. Listen, he doesn't merely make certain people savable. He saves his people from their sins. Which means if you are in Christ by faith, he has saved you from your sins. Emmanuel is Jesus. Yahweh is salvation. Yahweh saves. So Jesus, our mediator, lived a sinless, perfect life, the life God requires of you and I that we could never give him. Then he died the death we deserve but don't want to die. And he did both of these as our mediator. He did it on our behalf, in our place, in order to bring us to God. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. We also see that Jesus, in Scripture, we also see that Jesus is Emmanuel in his abiding presence with us. He continues to be with us. Now, when you read through the New Testament, I think of like Acts to the end, we don't see anyone, any of the disciples, in any context called Jesus Emmanuel. But they most certainly knew him as God with us. They certainly knew him as a God who was with them. Not in some mindless, vague, you know, squishy sort of way. They knew him as the risen, glorious Savior, truly and really with them. Think of Paul. At the end of his life, he has, you know, a court case before Caesar. And no one's there. He says, none of my friends came. None of them came, none of them came to me. He says, Lord, don't count it against them. Isn't that gracious? <laughs> Would we be so gracious? I don't know. Maybe not. <laughs> but he says this. No one stood with me, but the Lord was with me. The Lord was with me. Jesus is Emmanuel as he continues to be with his people. Wren Collective has a, has a wonderful, well, a couple, I think, but one that I really, really enjoy, a Christmas album. And there, there's this refrain at the end of a song, and it's actually, the, it's actually Emmanuel, or uh, Rejoice, Rejoice, uh, Emmanuel. But it says this, Rejoice, Rejoice, our God is here with us. Rejoice, rejoice, our God is still with us. He is with us not temporarily, but eternally. Of course, Jesus said this at the end of his earthly ministry, after his resurrection. He gathered his disciples. He gave them what we call the Great Commission, and these are the final words. And lo, or behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age or of the world. Behold, I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus is not just saying that he's with them and like just kind of vaguely with them like, hey, like I'm, I'm there for you. I'm with you no matter what, right? He's saying I am with you always to the very end 
of the age. How can this be so? Because we know Christ is at the right hand of the Father. Well, the night before his crucifixion, Jesus made it clear that on the one hand, he was going to be leaving his disciples. And yet, on the other hand, he would be with them in a deeper and more profound way. He said this, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. He said later, my father and I will make our home in you. John 16, 17, or John 16, 7, excuse me. Amazingly, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, it is better for you, more expedient, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, I will not send the helper, but if I go, I will send him. Jesus is really and truly with us now and always by his spirit. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. It's the Spirit of the Father. The Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. And so Christ is Emmanuel with us and in us through his Spirit. Now this is a game changer, right? Because in one sense, like Jesus said, no one has ever seen the Father. And I take that, I take him at his word. No one has seen the Father face to face. The Father's Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is Spirit. But we have four Gospels where we see what God is like in Christ. And we know that this one that we read about in the Gospels, He is with us through His Spirit. I love um, what I read Elizabeth Elliot said. She said, The secret is Christ in me, not me in a different set of circumstances. Now, I would add to that, the the secret is Christ in me and me in him. Maybe me and him first, right? We're united to Christ, but then he certainly is in us, Christ in us, the hope of glory. But the, the secret is Christ in me, not me in a different set of circumstances. He is with us always to the very end of the age. There is never a time or a place in which, as Christians, we could truly say, I don't think he's with me now. That's unbelief. Jesus Christ is Emmanuel, God with us to the end of the age. Now, what this is meant to do is not just give us warm fuzzies as we're sitting by the fire drinking our coffee. I mean, it it ought to encourage us there. But it, it ought to encourage us there, okay? It should really encourage us there. But this is meant to thrust us forward in bold, courageous living for his glory. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us to the end of the age. And then, of course, what about at the end of the age? Right? Jesus said, I'm with you always to the end of the age. What about the end of the age? Well, Jesus is Emmanuel in his consummation as well. The consummation of all things. The, the, the summing up of all things. The concluding of all things. He is, with, he is Emmanuel in his future conquering return. The second advent. When Christ comes again and will be with us forever. I wonder, do you ever think about the second coming of Jesus? Now, 
I don't want to get too sidetracked here, but my, some of my eschatologies has been changing over the last few years, um, which I won't get into. But every Christian, should, that's our blessed hope, right? The return of Christ. When our God and Savior will appear. Our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, will appear. So do you ever think about the return of Christ? You should. It should make you, or it should, it would make you much happier. It would. And if, and if the thought of Jesus returning is a dread to you, it ought to be an indicator that something's not right. It ought to be an indicator something's not right. It's, it's not that there's something not right with Christ, that there's something not right in you. Jesus is coming again, and he's coming for his people. This world that God entered 2,000 years ago at Christ's first advent will be recreated, utterly transformed at Christ's second advent. When he ascended into heaven, a couple of angels came and talked to his disciples. Right, His disciples, they were gawking into heaven as he's like leaving, and the, the angel said, he is going to come in the same way that you saw him go into heaven. In other words, he's going to come bodily as the God-man. And then the words of joy to the world will be fully realized, which say he comes to make his blessing flow as far as the curse is found. Now, I believe that's happening now, progressively, but it's going to happen fully when Christ comes again. His blessing will flow as far as the curse is found and he will undo every wrong. He will make every wrong right. Everything untrue, everything sad, I think is that what, that's how it goes in Lord of the Rings. Everything sad will become untrue at Christ's return. And we will be with the Lord and see his glory. Now we will see him in a different way. We see him now with the eyes of faith. Right? We see him with the eyes of faith. We see him, we do truly see him with the eyes of faith, but then we will see him with full sight and be awestruck with joy and wonder forever. I love how it puts it in 2 Thessalonians 1 that Christ is going to come and he's going to slay the lawless man with the word of his mouth, with the breath of his mouth, and it says, and those who are waiting for him, they're going to marvel at him, at his coming. You ever stood before a natural marvel? <laughs> so uh, last week I got to, well, yeah, I guess it's new week. The week before, I got to spend some time with my daughter in Hawaii, my mom as well. And we went to, I would have never thought that I enjoyed botanical gardens. I, you know, like the Des Moines Botanical Garden, like take it or leave it. I'd probably rather not go there. But uh, we went to one on the big island. It's outdoors. It's Hawaii. And uh, it was stunning. And I was enthralled and amazed at these marvelous trees. They're called monkey pod trees. They were marvelous. I think my daughter Olivia's like, she's like, geez, Dad. <laughs> I mean, she's, I'm going on and on about these trees. It was just amazing. When Christ comes, 
we will truly marvel at him, at his coming. When we see him, we will marvel at him. We will be awestruck with joy and wonder, and it will never, ever for all eternity cease. I mean, imagine heaven, heaven becoming boring. God forbid. That's why when people think of heaven as like this perpetual church service, trust me, it's not going to be that. All right? We'd all be bored out of our minds. We'll be with the Lord. We'll see his glory, and he'll be with us as our God forever. Jesus expressed this as his great desire in John 17. In his prayer, it's called the high priestly prayer. Verse 24, Jesus said this. Now, just sense the Lord's desire here. He said, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given to me may be with me where I am and see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. When Jesus turned water into wine, John 2 makes it clear. He did that. There's a purpose for that. It was to reveal his glory. It's to manifest his glory. This is a glory that's, that is on another level. We, we are talking about the uncreated glory of God. And this prayer will be answered. It will be answered. This is our future hope. Listen to Revelation 21, verses 1 to 4. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud, a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away." It's so clear. We see in verse 3, three different times, God with us. He will be with us. We will be his people and he will be with us as our God. Through Christ, God will dwell with us as Emmanuel, unfiltered forever. So Jesus is not was, Emmanuel. He's God with us. He became like us. He lived and died in our place, on our behalf, to remove every barrier to God. He remains with us through his spirit, and he is coming again for us. It's clear God wants to be with his people. So, the question is, how do we know him as Emmanuel, as God with us? How do you know him as God with us? You. John 1.12 is the key, at least the truth that's expounded there. John 1.12 says this, To all who receive him, who believe in his name, he gives the right to become children of God. 
To all who receive him, who believe in his name. So it's to all who receive him. That's the key, to receive him, to believe on his name. To believe, to receive means to believe on his name. To receive him means to receive him as a gift, right? But a gift received cannot be left under the tree or on the shelf. It's got to be opened. It must be embraced. It must be enjoyed. And this is actually, I think, one of the keys to the Christian life. Salvation is not primarily a thing we get from God, as if God says, here, I'm going to give you a little salvation. Rather, God gives us himself. And salvation is found in him. Romans 8.32, right? You guys have heard me say this so many times, many of you. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? He gives us salvation with Christ. He gives us every good thing with and in Christ. Jesus is Emmanuel God with us. And so the goal of the Christian life is not to hanker people or have other people hanker us to try harder, to do better, and be better Christians. Now, of course, don't misunderstand me. Of course, we need to be exhorted. We need even at times to be rebuked. We need hard words for sure at times. But it could be that we don't truly understand what it means to be a Christian. We receive a person we receive him. Richard Sibbs put it this way, <clears throat> and again in his book, A Bruised Reed. He said, He became like us, Emmanuel, God with us, that we might become like him and partake of his divine nature. And whom should we rather desire to be like than one so great, so gracious, so loving? You don't hear any hankering like, you ought to do better, right? Why? Who would we rather desire to be like than one so gracious and so kind and so loving and so great? Jesus is to be received as a gift, one you can't pay for. We don't do tit for tat. Okay, he gave me, so I better give him something in return. No, no, you can't pay for it. It's free. But... You also cannot and dare not receive this gift dispassionately. Kind of passively, I'll take that. A tip of the hat to Jesus will not do. Okay? If you know Jesus as God with us in the fullest and most exhaustive, excuse me, if you would know Jesus as God with us, in the fullest, most exhaustive sense of that phrase, you must receive him fully. Not a divided, partial Jesus. Not a Jesus who kind of adds a little comfort to your life. Not a Jesus who gives some good vibes. Okay? Not an add-on Jesus. Not Jesus as a garnishment on the plate of your designer life. He will not be that for you. Receive Jesus as Emmanuel, God with us. 
God with you. Receive Jesus, Emmanuel, as a precious gift, as an immeasurably valuable gift. And if you would have him and receive him as your greatest treasure, here's the glorious thing. If you would have him and receive him as your greatest treasure, you know what? He will be. He will be. He'll be your greatest treasure now and forever. Of course, our emotions, we ebb and flow. I get all of that. But he will be your treasure. He will be your pearl of great price. He will be the treasure hidden in the field that you give up anything to possess that. This is the way in which you and I, to know Christ in this way, to receive him as this precious gift. It's the way you and I may live secure, fully assured lives of peace in this clown world we live in right now. And it's a clown world. It's insane. But we can live at peace. We can live fully secured. We can live fully assured. This is how you and I may live full of joy and contentment while constantly surrounded by anger and bitterness and vitriol and envy and jealousy. This is how you and I may live lives full of faithfulness and courage and hope when the world is like Chicken Little wondering if the the sky is going to fall. This is how we can live in this manner to the end of our lives. Jesus Christ is Emmanuel, God with us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I do worship you and thank you for your word. I thank you for the presence of your spirit here. I thank you for your son Jesus, who truly is Emmanuel, God with us. I thank you that he said he would not leave us as orphans. He would would come to us, and he has and does come to us. He is with us. Oh, he's with us all the time.